Greetings. Welcome to another edition of the CLE Sports Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Casey Drotter. First of all, sorry about the hiatus last week. Things got a pinch hectic, and I guess that actually sets the table for an initial update right off the bat. Uh, life's about to get a little crazy here, and as a result, I can't guarantee a steady schedule when it comes to the show. I don't want to get too far into details. Uh, those who need to know, know. It's not bad. Definitely not bad. Actually quite exciting. But it may make it difficult to keep up with the weekly shows. I will try my best to keep things going as frequently as possible. I just can't make any guarantees right now. But I definitely made a point to get a show in this week because football is back! Not this week. Not for the Browns, anyway. Other teams, sure. Yay, week one. (laughs) But uh, for the Browns, you know... Maybe next time? No, I'm definitely not excited to discuss Browns football because as per the usual, week one meant the team was only there spiritually. And even that was up for debate. To set the table, look, I really don't have any expectations for this team. I don't have bad ones. I don't have good ones. I have none. Honest to God, I think part of the reason is because, frankly, last year kind of, you know, broke me. I was one of many who entered week one of 2019 thinking, oh man, this is it. All these years following the NFL's experimental high school team are finally going to pay off. We've got Baker Mayfield. We've got Jarvis Landry. We've got Odell freaking Beckham. Does Freddie Kitchens have enough experience to merit being a head coach? No, but who cares? Because if y'all don't wear brown and orange, you don't matter. And what happened? They lost by 30 points and proceeded to be one of the most unlikable, inexplicably and unreasonably cocky teams I've ever seen in any sport. It was a chaotic train wreck which just never, ever ended. So this year, I thought, you know what? No, no, I'm not going to get into any hype. But I'm also not going to plod through the offseason like freaking Eeyore saying, Ho-hum, doesn't even matter. They're just going to be terrible. I I came in neutral. Very, eh, whatever. We'll see what happens. And it was great. It was waking up on Sunday and thinking nothing about the game beyond there is a game today. Freedom defined. Can't recommend it enough. And you know what? Why wouldn't I think that? After all, this was a summer that featured no minicamp, no OTAs, no preseason games, a misshapen training camp, learning a brand new coaching scheme via Zoom calls. Things are going to be sloppy. It happens. And hey, the Browns haven't won the opening game of the year since the final months of George W. Bush's first presidential term, so why expect anything but a loss? However... Okay, Baltimore is very good. So, so very good. It would have been foolish for anyone to have bet on Cleveland in this one. And judging by my Twitter timeline, that very much took place. It was not a matchup you want if you're Kevin Stefanski making your head coaching debut. But good God almighty. For having a brand new coach and an offseason without the nonstop hype parade. Very little was different about this week one stomping compared to last year's week one stomping. 
38 to 6. Yeah. It was it was pretty bad. And I I expected slop. There was no preseason. Minimal contact between players and coaches for months. I did not anticipate Cleveland coming out guns a-blazing. But I at least expected hints of competency. Like a handful. Is that asking too much? He's saying, hey, could you at least show enough promise to indicate that this entire season won't be another forever burning trash fire? Is that being too demanding? I'd say we've earned something like that. But, alas, that is not what we got. I'd say Baltimore turned this into a laugher early, but really, the Browns did that on their own. Where to start? Why not just run through all the things that went wrong early that turned a game which very much could have and should have been close into an absolute boat racing? Baker Mayfield threw a pick on the opening drive because, sure, Baltimore followed said pick with a 49-yard touchdown drive because, obviously... The Browns' next drive resulted in a 4th and 4 at their own 31, just the absolute perfect time to draw up a fake punt. Am I right, Freddie Kitchens? That wasn't Freddie Kitchens? Was Kevin Stefanski working with his playbook? What was the deal with that? I'd have been upset with the Jamie Gillen fumble on the first rush attempt of his career, but he only gained about 8.5 inches on the run, so hey, who cares because it doesn't matter. The Browns did score a touchdown on their next drive, and for a minute there, honest to God, I thought, okay, wow, what resilience. They started this game like a drunk, stumbling through a room full of mousetraps, but way to hold strong and keep fighting. And then Austin Seibert missed the extra point because, hey, those is hard for kickers. Moving on, the Browns stopped Baltimore at the goal line by forcing a fumble, and oh, all right, here we go. It's time to rally. No! The ensuing drive ended after the Browns failed to convert 3rd and 41. Would have been 3rd and 36, but delay of game. But hey, Jamie Gillen rebounded from his failed tryout at halfback by pinning Baltimore at the 1, which really just helped pad Lamar Jackson's stats as he marched the Ravens 99 yards down the field for a touchdown. Again, at 17-6, despite the start, Things were not completely out of hand for Cleveland. They suddenly became that way after Odell Beckham pulled off the Braylon Edwards special and dropped a pass that hit him directly in the hands at Baltimore's 23, which was followed by, sure, another shank kick from Austin Seibert. And hey, let's ice that cake. Follow that all up with a 69-yard touchdown drive, which took the Ravens a whole 35 seconds. That was just the first half. It could have been 17-13 to 13 at worst after all that. And instead, 24-6. to 6. And then Baltimore scored more and the Browns were done scoring. I really can't dig into the second half because, good God, this whole thing was a mess I want to burn from my memory the second the opportunity arrives. I, if you don't want to be referred to as the same old Browns, if you don't want every fan trotting that phase into your Twitter mentions, stop looking like the same old Browns. Because once again, new coach, same fun quirks to a season opener. Things like losing a week one game in general. The Browns displaying a remarkable inability to cover a tight end. Extremely ill-timed penalties. Forcing viewers to ask, 
They have practiced before, right? This isn't the first time they've all met each other. Making crucial mistakes that, had they been converted, would have led to a tighter game, but instead helped aid the blowout. Turnovers snuffing out whatever hope this team had cobbled together. Shanked extra points. And for the win, fans suddenly tweeting that the Browns need to tank for fill-in top college quarterback's name here. Now, I've said it before, I will say it again. I am not ready to write off Baker Mayfield like so many are and were yesterday at about 1.30 p.m. I've continually insisted that this season the goal is to determine which year best represents the real Baker. 2018, his sparkling rookie debut, or 2019, the exact opposite of that. And 2019 has taken the initial lead. Because this was not an inspiring day. 21 completions on 39 pass attempts, 189 yards, a touchdown, a pick, and a passer rating of 65. Or, in a much more depressing frame, almost 100 points lower than that of Lamar Jackson. He seemed quicker out of the pocket, so that was encouraging. His interception was on a tip ball, but again, I'm not sure how he missed 6'8 Calais Campbell dropping back into coverage, but whatever. Accuracy was again a problem, especially with Odell Beckham, who, I don't know. I really don't know what that was. Talk about the worst possible start to a season that Odell says is going to be his big year. Three receptions, 22 yards receiving, was targeted 10 times. Three for 10. Had the aforementioned drop had a bad face mask penalty that helped destroy a potentially good drive, apparently needed an IV in the locker room, don't know what that was about, had a decent snag nullified because he stepped out of bounds and didn't reestablish before making the catch, really only helped the Browns gain yards by picking up penalties. I wondered if Kevin Stefanski was going to be the first Cleveland coach to grasp the concept of second-half adjustments since the iPhone was invented. In this one... It seemed like the adjustment was force ball to Odell because Odell. Again, did Freddie Kitchens possess him or something? Either way, Baker missed Odell Beckham bad on more than one occasion, and I honestly don't know. I don't know how their chemistry can still be this terrible entering year two. I know they couldn't practice that much this summer, but after a full season together, it still seems like they're... Forget being on the same page. They aren't even in the same library. Whatever. Overall, a damn mess, which is par for the course with this team. And again, the hype from last year completely numbed me from this one. It did. They lost by more on Sunday than they did in that face plant of a debut last year. And I just, I kind of sat there. You'd think I was watching Bob Ross. Just, huh. Well, that's no good. Now, for as much of a mess as that was, the season is not over. Yes, I know there are many, many Browns fans I'm trying to convince of that fact, but it's true. You shouldn't have expected for this team to look like a buzzsaw out of the gate for reasons I mentioned previously. It's going to take some time. I saw some Browns fans say, well, they play Cincinnati this Thursday, and then they take on the Washington football players, 2-1. and one. With that, I don't feel that same level of confidence. In fact, I'm taking the Bengals Thursday, just because Cleveland has more talent but despite having most of that talent for 17 games now, 
They've yet to look like a team that knows what to do with it. Which is why I'm picking the Bengals to win. It's like an innocent until proven guilty thing. The Browns are untrustworthy to bet on until proven otherwise. And they haven't proven otherwise since, at best, 2007. One quick note, this happened right before I logged on to record the show. Austin Seibert, he of the shanked field goal and extra point, gone. That quickly, just gone. They waved him this morning. All right. Uh, his replacement is Cody Double Doink Parkey. Cool. Looking forward to that playing out. Uh, once again, let's just hammer this fact home for everyone who apparently still isn't learning this lesson. Don't waste a draft pick on a kicker. Cyber was taken in the fifth round. He's gone. That quickly. In year two, game one. There are other kickers out there. Oh, my God. You don't have to spend a draft pick on them, much less a fifth rounder. But, again, the rose fell off the bloom with John Dorsey last year, and he's no longer here to point and laugh at. All right. Yeah, moving on. The Cavs, nothing new there. They were, by default, the most successful team in Cleveland this week in that they did nothing. So good on you. Because, yeah, if you're looking for positives after a Browns game like that, I don't have much for you in the baseball department. Things with the Indians, quite terrible right now. It didn't start that way. Hell, as of Monday, the Indians were in first. Ha <laughs> ha! They're in third now. Yeah, four and a half games back. Cool, cool. Oh, God. This has been quite an unpleasant stretch. And look, a weekend set against the Twins did threaten to put a damper on things, but that it was preceded by losing three straight to a Royals team, which had entered the four-game series, having lost their previous six. Zich. Uh, uh, pick a more deflating way to lose three straight games. I dare you. Taking two separate two-run leads only to give up five in the final three frames? Check. Losing 3 nothing despite getting Carlos Carrasco's best start of the season? Check. Almost getting no hit while losing by nine? Check. It's the Royals! No offense to them, I'm not trying to be mean, but you're in last place and therefore should not have outscored Cleveland 18-4 in three straight games. So yeah, set the table like that, and a set against Minnesota is just the last thing the Indians needed. And yep, it sucked. Cleveland got swept, Shane Bieber lost his first game of the year, Zach Pleasak got touched up for the first time this season, just bad, 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 bad. And frankly, I don't know what the fix is. They look flat. The opponent scores a run, and you can feel the dugout lose some air. The starting rotation leads the league in wins above replacement, yet even that isn't enough. It's uh, Because if a starter allows a couple earned, it feels like the game is suddenly out of reach. And that's extremely unfair to a group of pitchers which has collectively excelled this year. Yet that's the drill with the offense. And in fairness, Cleveland did score more than a single run on... Saturday and Sunday, which, which was that was actually an accomplishment if you watched the games from earlier in the week. But Minnesota turns out they're real good at grabbing response runs almost immediately after you chip away at their lead. Overall, though, offensively, this is still pretty big wreck. Coming into today, Cleveland boasts the fourth lowest team OPS in the majors, fourth lowest weighted on base average, fifth lowest weighted runs created plus when narrowing it down to just the American League. Only the Texas Rangers have worse numbers than those. 
And yeah, they have their moments. Scoring 14 against St. Louis a couple weeks ago, 10 against the Royals on September 1st. Collectively, though, this offense is at best alarmingly top-heavy. And again, I, I'm i not sure how you solve it other than waiting for some sort of course correction that signs indicate isn't anywhere around the corner. They tried mixing it up a bit. Francisco Lindor was moved out of the third spot to hit leadoff for the first time this season. And hey, he hit the ball hard through most of the weekend. Does that fix the fact that Carlos Santana is batting 210? He has a great on-base percentage, 364, and I don't want to take that away from him. But the results are a notable drop-off after his All-Star campaign last year. A cleanup hitter does have to hit on occasion. And he's had his moments, but a, a 210's not good. Does it fix the fact Framil Reyes has one extra base hit since September 2nd? Does it fix the fact that nobody, literally nobody, who plays catcher for this team can hit a baseball? They're carrying three catchers right now, and none of them has a batting average above 167. Does it fix the fact that Oscar Mercado it just looks like a man without confidence? He struck out in the second inning. The second inning Saturday night and almost spiked the bat into the dirt. Something like that happening just two frames into a game. Genuinely concerning. So sure, moving Lindor to leadoff is fine, but the lineup as a whole... It's just kind of flailing at the moment, especially the back half. And one giant 10-run output on a random game this week will not mean, oh, it's fixed, can't believe you guys thought this offense was in trouble. It is. It very much is, and has been for the bulk of the season. Some of the solutions need to happen internally. Lindor, to his credit, is starting to get his act together after a rocky start of the year, finally has above-average numbers in weighted on base average, weighted runs created plus. Jose Ramirez... I can't say I'm excited about him playing through a thumb injury. Why a team with 98% odds to make the postseason is letting one of its best players take the field hurt, it's beyond me. He looked good this weekend. I'll give him that, so maybe it's not hurting as bad as they initially implied. Hopefully it's adjusting through the pain. Carlos Santana, his career trends hinted at drop-offs and slugging percentage this year, but it's happening far more dramatically than anyone expected, and that needs to get fixed in a hurry. However... Some of this could have been addressed and was not. The outfield was always a hodgepodge of average. They carried a billion outfielders into the season, and expectations weren't severely high. Nothing was done to address this area of the roster in the offseason beyond A, getting Framil Reyes to lose 18 pounds so he could log five innings in left field, and 2, signing Domingo Santana and cutting him after he played 24 games. The outfield could have been addressed at the trade deadline. It was not. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that Josh Naylor is a bust and a waste of an acquisition. He is not. He's only played 12 games for Cleveland since arriving. That's far too small of a sample size to say, well, he's not going to get it done. But he was the only guy in the Mike Clevenger trade who could potentially be viewed as someone who could help the offense now. Gabriel Arias and Owen Miller are prospects. They weren't going to be counted on as present-day solutions. Austin Hedges, solid defensive catcher who only twice in five seasons has finished with a batting average above 200. He's batting 156 this year, so that stat won't be updating in 2020. So, unfair as it may be, Josh Naylor and his career 681 OPS was who the front office pointed to when asked by fans, hey, 
who in this Mike Clevenger deal helps this team's struggling offense. And right now, Naylor has just five hits in 37 plate appearances with the Tribe, all of them singles. He's fitting right in with the outfield, and no, that's not a compliment. Again, it's far too early to give any concrete evaluation on the Clevenger trade. I need, I cannot hammer that home enough. I had someone tell me the day after it was made, this is already looking like a disaster. Day! A day after the trade. Three of the guys you haven't even seen touch a big league ballpark. Still, in order to resolve legitimate offensive concerns, the front office acquired two guys who are currently batting 214 and 156 respectively. It's fair to question the approach, especially now as the team flops its way to October. On the surface, it really does seem like the front office saw some real concerns and, at the deadline, thought, eh, we'll be fine. Expanded playoffs. We can do little to help the team right now and still make it. And that's swell until you lose two games and your season's over. Is that a win? Is that a feather in the front office's cap? To make the postseason almost by default, watch the team struggle to score and leave in the blink of an eye? I sure hope nobody pats themselves on the back for something like that. And that's a couple weeks down the road. I don't want to just outright say, well, they're going to get swept, so who even cares? Still, if the playoffs end with another whimper, and mind you, they haven't won a playoff baseball game since Game 2 of the 2017 ALDS, and all this takes place after the team makes a trade, which helps more in the future than it does now, expect critique. The front office should anticipate criticism for, it would seem, seeing expanded playoffs as an excuse to pile up prospects without addressing current concerns. Because, pfft, not like we are going to make the playoffs. And I gotta tell you, that criticism would be fair. It would. I know, I know, blah, 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 gotta cut costs. I do appreciate Cleveland's approach to ensure they're continually good as opposed to the constant alternation between going for broke and cutting anyone with a five-figure salary to avoid going broke. But this right now seems like a blatant disregard for significant holes. And fans are right to be upset about that. The pitching is great. It is. But as we saw all week, great pitching means very little if even holding your opponent to a couple runs is still grounds for a loss. And, uh, in Saturday and Sunday's case, if the pitching falters a little bit, because guess what, they are human, the offense needs to pick up the slack, and right now, it only looks moderately capable of doing so. I, I don't know. I, I, I Again, there, there are near lock to make the playoffs, but that's because the gap between them and the ninth team is pretty sizable. Is that a win? Again, first place Monday, third place Sunday. I I'm not seeing that as encouraging. Six-game losing streak. Whatever. I, I want to say, you know what? Maybe they make the playoffs and boom! Offense wakes up just in time. Only got to win two games. I'm not betting on that right now because, again, you have to hit. And that is a update for the back half of the roster. All right. For my event of the week, I'm just going to start out by saying, yes, I'm fully aware that giving the subject of this vent any attention is exactly what he wants. There is truly no point in the year 2020 to get worked up by something said by Skip Bayless, of all people. He is a cyborg brought on Earth for the sole purpose of saying the dumbest possible take just so he can get clicks and traffic. Is his take wrong? Probably! 
But it doesn't matter because by responding to it, you make his mission complete. All right? I, I, I get it. Fully understand. I just... I have a big problem with what he said about Dak Prescott. Prescott, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, admitted that he endured depression this past April when his brother died of suicide. That, paired with the pandemic, was a lot for him to handle, which is beyond understandable. And seriously, good for him for coming out and admitting this. I applaud anyone who refuses to feel shame for their mental health struggles, who refuses to hide them. Mental health is extremely important, and when you're not in a good spot with it, it can be scary, and it can be dangerous. But you don't shy away from that. You don't just tough it out and bury it because that's what a real man does. The best way to beat it is to be open and honest about it, and that's what Dak Prescott did, and he deserves every single bit of praise that was heaped his way. Most people agreed with that line of thinking. Skip Bayless, as we know, is not most people. And the way he addressed this, it's literally inhumane. He opened first by saying, Look, I have deep compassion for clinical depression. Followed that with, but, and proceeded to explain why, since Prescott is the quarterback of America's team, Skip does not feel sympathy for him admitting publicly what he was going through. That saying you fought through depression could make your teammates question your leadership, because you're the CEO of the locker room, damn it. Oh, what will your opponents do now that they know, and let me just recheck my notes here, ah, yes, fought through mental health struggles after the freaking death of your brother. Go to hell, Skip. Honest to God. This was not a sports take. This was not one of his usual, I know LeBron James has 89 points, but did you see how confidently Kyle Kuzma just hit that free throw? This is his team now. No, this was hearing someone bravely admit personal struggles and responding by saying, well, that's a sign of weakness. Shouldn't have done that. What a freaking... Ghoul. Why is this even a debate topic? Did this need to be a back and forth? Couldn't it have been a one-way street skip and Shannon Sharp just giving Prescott his due praise for boldly standing up and saying, hey, this is what I've been going through. No! No, gotta debate everything. And Shannon Sharp, to his credit, tried to push back. I kind of wish he would have interrupted sooner, but he did say, hey, these guys are human. They're not robots. They go through the same emotions you and I do. But the whole time, Skip's face is just making this expression of, yeah, but unbelievable. And I do mean that. I know saying stupid crap for attention is his shtick, but stupid me, I figured there was a line somewhere, anywhere. Just, I figured said line was well before tisk tisking someone for having the gall to say I had a really tough time after my brother passed away. God forbid your teammates find out you're a human freaking being. Thankfully, Fox Sports gave Skip Bayless the proper punishment for issuing such an awful and, let's be honest, dangerous commentary. And by proper, I mean they said we talked to Skip about it internally and then put him right back on the air the next day. That'll show him. Now I'm not going to sit here and say he should have been fired on the spot. Do I disagree with the idea of paying him solely to make takes like these because yay attention? Absolutely. Still, he should have at the very least been given an opportunity to explain his pathetic excuse of a sports debate topic. And you know what? He at least apologized, right? No? 
That's not what happened? Oh, right. He instead said, hey, I opened my take by claiming I have deep compassion for clinical depression. What more do you want from me? Okay, wow. I I'm shocked, but I'm not. His quote-unquote apology was him saying, I acknowledge this was serious before explaining why I could give cowboy opponents a competitive advantage and therefore it was a no-no. <laughs> I, I don't get why everyone's upset. But here's the thing. There is no explaining this away. There's no, well, he knew what he was saying was wrong, but he said it anyway. That's just skip. That's even worse to knowingly think, <laughs> I'm going to call Dak Prescott weak because he publicly admitted he battled depression. That's better? That makes it okay? No! I know a lot of people said, this is just Skip, this is what he does, don't pay him any attention. But no, I, I can't. I have a problem with this. I can't look away. I don't think we can just shrug off someone explaining why sharing the truth about your mental health is some sort of bulletin board material for your opponent. It's an absolute joke that he said it. It's an absolute joke that his punishment was a finger wagging behind the camera. And it's an absolute joke that he didn't even apologize for it. Just instead said... Well, I put a weak caveat in front of my garbage pail opinion. Problem solved. Pathetic. Absolutely, unequivocally pathetic. And sadly, considering the source on brand. Seriously, if you're going through something like Dak Prescott, if you're enduring battles when it comes to your mental health, it's okay. It is. Be open about it. Let people in. Let people help you. Don't throw it in a well. Don't hide it because clowns like Skip Bayless want to tell you that's what tough people do. Because that's a line of bull. It's okay. It is. Don't feel shame. Don't feel like letting someone know what you're feeling is a weakness. It's not. You're stronger by admitting what you're going through. Don't ever forget that. I, 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 again, I get it. I know the source and it's pointless to get that animated about something Skip Bayless says. Fully aware and almost slightly ashamed that I did, but that that's just too far. That's too far. This is not a stupid, you know, well, I'm going to sit here and explain to you why Isaiah Thomas was the best Cavalier of all time, not LeBron. It wasn't a stupid take that he knows was wrong, but hey, it's going to fire up my mentions, so there you go. No, this was basically saying you're weak for admitting you had mental health struggles, and that's not okay. It's very dangerous. That line of thinking shouldn't be pushed. And I'm glad everyone was there to dunk on him for it. But again, he'll never learn. Because his his apology and heavy use of air quotes was just saying, well, didn't you hear the first part where I said I have deep, deep compassion for those who are suffering it right before saying, but that was it. That was him saying, there, I've, I've done my due time. I, yeah, I don't know. That got me. And you know what? If it, uh, This is the take I'm proud to get animated about. I am. Because it needs to be said, this needs to be yelled every chance it can be, that you are not a weak human being for admitting you struggle with mental health. I have no problem yelling that over and over again from the rooftops because it's true, regardless of what Skip says. God. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. I've been your host, Casey Drotter. As mentioned earlier, the frequency is going to be up and down. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to maintain a weekly or a close a bi-weekly cadence. I can't promise anything, but I'll give it my best go. Hi, I've been your host. You can follow me on Twitter at cdrotter19 or on Facebook at CaseyDrotterRant. That's all one word. Be sure to follow all of my Indians columns on Sports Illustrated, and be sure to subscribe to the CLE Sports Talk podcast on 
iTunes and Spotify. I will see you all soon. Wear a damn mask and go Dayton Flyers. <laughs> <laughs>